to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Hello Ed, I'm grand. It's nice to be back talking to you, because in real life we haven't spoken for a couple of weeks, Mm. but we had our, um, I hope everyone enjoyed our Heathers and Popstar Never Stop Never Stopping recaps as much as I did. Uh, I, I, I listen back because I always want to listen back to make sure that I try and sound reasonably coherent and I just cackled I realized how much I cackled the whole way through that so hopefully everyone else enjoyed it as much as we did yeah I, I uh, enjoyed listening back to it um, as part of my my traveling you know I've been uh, on a lot of planes and trains and things so I've got a lot of I've been managing to keep up on a lot of the podcasts that I listen to just regularly uh, over the last couple of days in addition to like all the ones that I went and watched live uh, and yeah, I I really enjoyed listening back to those two episodes, particularly the Popstar one, because by the time it came out, I was like, I really have forgotten half the things we said. So it was it was all fresh and new to me because I'd edited it and uh, programmed it like two weeks earlier. It was really funny as well because we'd decided to talk about it. I finally bought it on Amazon Prime, treated myself, and then it came out on Netflix two days later. I wasn't even angry. <laughs> I wasn't even angry. I love those boys. They can be on whatever platform streaming service they like. I don't care. But otherwise, I am uh, a bit nervous that people may be able to hear some rattling of windows and some pretty heavy rain because I, being in uh, the west of Scotland as I am in Bonnie, Glasgow, we're currently being hit by Storm Alley. <laughs> so mm. it's a bit, uh, it's a tad Floridian, actually, uh, what we've yeah. got just now it's 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 wet and wild and i am inside for the day <laughs> um but storms storms aside i'm grand thanks ed ah, good good to hear yeah we've we've just i mean florida itself didn't have a storm but obviously we barely missed uh hurricane florence and that was God. um that was that was a fun thing to be watching in the week before flying over because Last year, exactly the same time last year when I came over for last year's London Podcast Festival was when Hurricane Irma was barreling towards Florida. That was very strange and also was kind of a race against time (laughs) to see if I could, if my flight would be leaving before they shut down the airport. Uh, And in the end, that last year I was like on the fourth or fifth plane (laughs) out of Orlando Airport before they shut it down. Um, So this year it was like, oh, all deja vu. And then it just veered off and, and... hit the Carolinas uh, and yeah I guess if anyone out there you know can donate to charities that are going to help people recover from that then please do because uh, yes, yeah I having having come back to the aftermath of a hurricane last year it's very bad <laughs> even if you're fairly mildly affected as I was yeah. uh, it, there can be a lot of damage and a lot of devastation just uh, particularly for people who live in in poorer areas you know that don't really have much of an infrastructure even the the richer areas you know they'll be without power for for days if not weeks and that can be absolutely devastating so yeah if anyone wants to donate and i will find links to put in the um to the description i guess uh if anyone wants to kind of like help out in the, and re- help people recover from the the storm let's look after each other if we can yeah definitely so obviously we've been out for a couple of weeks so there's a lot of news to talk about so we're oh going to kind of like 
we're going to kind of focus in really on a few things, a few big things that happened. Uh, one of which is kind of us checking in with something we talked about on our preview episode. And uh, when we did that episode, we talked about how excited we were about Shane Black's The Predator, which was just then about to come out. And then literally the day that we put the episode out, or maybe the day after, uh, the story broke that he had hired a sexual predator to work on his on the movie because he was friends with him. And then uh, Olivia Munn spoke out about how this was terrible. Uh, and subsequently the the guy was cut from the movie which was all you know that was the right thing for them to do but then since then that controversy has kind of consumed the movie to a great extent it hasn't done that well at the box office which uh, could probably be down to a number of factors but certainly that uh, wasn't what i think anyone involved in the movie wanted to be talking about on the red carpet obviously it kind of like touches on a lot of the subjects that we talk about on this show anyway but yeah i thought that was really uh, strange and unfortunate that we were so excited for that movie and then instantly uh, everyone was like, yes, this movie is not only not very good, but uh, is um, actively harmful in some ways. I mean, how is it so difficult to just have the Predator on screen, not behind the scenes? Mm, apparently very. Apparently really hard when it's your mate. It's crushingly disappointing something that was meant to be marketed as this like very Shane Black sort of pithy wit and action and something that was meant to be an easy watch which is now not at all not to make it sound like this is all about me uh I'm (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm desperate for something good in this world Ed and there's something good in this world is Olivia Munn for speaking up about it and using her uh leverage and, and gravitas to call out something that's absolutely horrific and I think there are quite a few titles of articles where you could see journalists really enjoying that they could start with Predator uh, Mm. and and play around with the title of the film and the syntax of their (laughs) of their title to uh, imply a bit more and and where their where their side was yeah it's just again it's we, we we're just further into this like I wouldn't say it's the darkest timeline it's incredibly dark but it's also just Mm. absurd to the point of not being even very like it's it's a it's ad nauseam now that's that's the level of absurd this is i am i am fully in ad nauseam but absolute credit to olivia munn i've heard like rumblings of people saying like oh she'll be blacklisted now and blah 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 and it's like well the fortunate thing about the continued cultural rise to the surface of me too is that if she is then people are going to come there's going to be some accountability somewhere if you don't hear mm. about olivia munn now you'll be like oh well that's because she's not being cast because she did that that's horrendous and i don't know whether there'll be any sort of like tribunal or official system that will be set up but it's not we're not living in a time now where it's like oh mira savino she was so great what whatever happened to her yeah Hopefully that will not happen. So absolute props to Olivia Munn and fuck Shane Black, frankly. Yep. Uh, yeah, nothing else to, to add to that. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I always feel like I all... just end every <laughs> every discussion we have about the latest sexual assault stories, me angrily swearing and uh, and shutting down the conversation. No, it's 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 a great mic drop to, to go out on. Uh, so we'll, we'll move on now to uh, something a little kind of lighter before going to a story later which is super weird 
but so yeah let's have a buffer between the super weird stories <laughs> the emmys happened this week on monday which everyone was angry about <laughs> because usually, usually they're on a sunday and everyone seemed very put out by having to stay up late on a monday uh, and you know we got some fairly predictable wins game of thrones won for i think the third year in a row certainly like they've won it a few times veep wasn't nominated this year because they didn't put out a season so the marvelous mrs Maisel won which was uh, a very nice surprise the assassination of gianni versace won limited series which uh, i'm very very happy about i mean that one i'm very very uh, happy about it too ed uh, i think you and i talked about it on a previous episode about how great darren chris is in that role and how it feels like such a you know, very disturbing and in some ways quite difficult, uh, but very necessary work of television. And I think it, I, I was worried that it wouldn't connect with people in the way that like the OJ series did, because the OJ series seemed to get a lot more attention while it was airing. And uh, Gianni Versace didn't seem to make quite the impact, but I thought it was uh, every bit as good, if not better than, than the OJ show. And of the nominees, you know, I was, I'm was i furious <laughs> that Twin Peaks wasn't nominated in limited series. So uh, of the nominees, I was very happy to see that that one won. I same. If it's not if it's not going to be Twin Peaks, then it, it had absolutely better be Assassination of Gianni Versace. I agree with you. I think the thing about Gianni Versace winning is it's such a timely story to bring mm. into modern day. And like we mentioned a little bit before, it's a lot about... Um, a certain kind of masculinity and grief and toxicity and uh, being gay and it, just this really and it was just so beautiful to watch as well. Yes. It's so incredibly shot. This sort of like like really acerbic, toxic neon, and then all of this kind of sunny pastels, and then the excess, and then the absolute crushing sense of loss amongst all this indulgence. So so good. And I think the thing is that looking for me through this kind of this year's Emmy Awards and the winners, I think what's really interesting is that it seems to be cantilevering on kind of saying goodbye to the big heavy hitters. It's like a thank you, mm. thank you and so long. Because you look at most of the winners are involved in shows that are about to finish or have finished. We're coming, mm. up, we're coming up to the end of Game of Thrones. We're coming up, you know, The, the Americans is finished. But then there's a little bit of a nod to the new guard as well, such as Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, mm. which, again, a really nice, surprising win. I still haven't finished it, but what I've watched of it, I've really enjoyed. And it is markedly different from a lot. But, you know, it could have easily have gone to Blackish, which is one of the best shows yeah. on TV. It's all of the categories are really, really strong. But I do think there does seem to be this kind of there's there's a lot of stalwarts for about seven years because that's generally a kind of tv generation with, with a good season it's it's rare that you'll run to like 10 or more than 10 like between five and seven is pretty much on average so it's mm. i'm really looking forward to next year because i think we are coming to the end of this tv cycle so there are some little surprising wins but i think generally a more kind of uh, uh, quite a fondness to a lot of yes. a lot of the winners who were kind of it's like yeah so long and farewell i think that also i think kind of applies to like claire foy winning for the crown because even though the crown is continuing on i think they've probably got another yeah. five <laughs> series that they've got to do with that um however however long betty hangs around for um <laughs> she is leaving the show uh, and is being re replaced by olivia, olivia coleman for the next season because you know as the character of 
Queen Elizabeth II ages, you know, they're going to cast different actors and so her winning there, even though she's a very, a very, very good actress. Uh, when you look at the rest of the people in those character in those categories, like someone like a Kerry Russell or um, Sandra O oh or Elizabeth Moss, who all did great work, it, like uh, Claire Foy winning does kind of feel again like recognition for someone. It's like okay, your work on this show was like incredibly good, and now you're leaving to kind of do other things to to be the girl with the dragon tattoo. Exactly, we we want to recognise you. Yeah, totally. That was that was her chance to be recognised, and I think also Claire Foy is really interesting because she's absolutely stratospherically shot over in over in America now. Mm. Like she's really on the up. She's been around and in uh, various BBC adaptations mainly. She's kind of one of those like absolute familiar faces, and I I thought she was absolutely brilliant in Wolf Hall. Um, yes, for example, I, I really enjoy her production, uh, her her pronunciation of Cremwell. Oh my is, god, uh, it's my favorite thing. Ed, it's my favorite thing. Every time she does it, I'm like, oh, do it again. I don't understand it, but I love it. Um, yeah, she deserved an Emmy for that pronunciation alone. So it's inter- <laughs> it's interesting to see that that's really like you know to sort of um, paraphrase Sally Field. They really like her to give her an Emmy mm. on this kind of uh, way out. But there's. Uh, kind of moving away from uh, the winners um, for a moment, just the actual ceremony, because I was not too endeared to the fact that Colin Jost and Michael Che were hosting. <laughs> yeah. And unsurprisingly, they gave a really lacklustre performance and weren't on stage all that much. It mm. seemed to be a lot of other people kind of drafted in, a lot more sketches and skits and, and things, which I think some commentators said, it felt like a really lacklustre lackluster episode of saturday night live and i think yeah because that's all they do michael che is a stand-up so he's already watering himself down for weekend update and his stand-up is questionable at best and cullen jost is a is a writer and he just does that one character it's not like when you had um tina fey and amy poehler at the golden globes for example like what a dream team they Mm. were because they come from a background of improv they come from energetic uh lively performances so that that was a bit and you know there was all this kind of on the surface sketches about like oh diversity we've solved it and things but then I think really the biggest (laughs) the the biggest surprise of the night was uh, Teddy Perkins turning up yeah to unnerve everyone (laughs) so unnerving and I mean Atlanta didn't win anything Mm. I think but I think they won the ceremony yeah, like that was all, more or less all anyone t- was talking about that. And uh, was it Glenn Weiss, the guy who proposed to his girlfriend in oh. his acceptance speech? Those those were the two biggest, uh, best moments it felt of the night. Uh, and, and also in terms of diversity, it did seem very telling that they were, everyone was talking about, you know, you know, all the nominees are very diverse and things like that. But then most of the winners on the night were white. Although... At the Creative Arts Emmys, which had happened the week before, I think it was notable that most of the people who, maybe all of the winners of the supporting categories that happened there were people of colour. So there was this very stark contrast between the Emmys that no one saw (laughs) and the Emmys that people did see, which uh, certainly feels like some uh, broader comment on the way that the television industry is structured. Oh God, totally. I also want to really quickly say, even though I went, because I'm, I'm very conscious of correcting myself uh, anyway, but particularly after this whole 
the predator fury that we've managed to get ourselves into. I said, <clears> I said, oh, there, like it, like it, ah, oh, uh, about that uh, public proposal. Um, it's pretty much the only one I think I will ever approve of because I think it's quite clear that whilst the proposal itself might have been a surprise, they're clear they were clearly heading that way anyway. So I don't feel like there yeah. was a big pressure that she <laughs> she felt differently. She wouldn't have to say no, beamed to the entire. Uh, Entire Television Academy and several other streaming streaming services, but yeah, what a what a night! I'm looking forward to the next one. I think that will really that will really see some things next year. Yeah, let John Mulaney host. Let John Mulaney <laughs> host. He was, but he was over on the bench, Ed. He was over mm. on the bench. <laughs> my favorite, I think, my, my favorite thing of the the Emmys may have been just Nick Kroll posting a picture of John Mulaney as a young kid on his Instagram and saying, "Hey, kid, you won an, S- an Emmy." It's like, oh, you guys, you've got a lovely friendship. <laughs> oh, you're so cute. Plus, John Mulaney's suit was amazing. Mm, yeah, he's always very well turned out. Very well night. turned out, but I think it really hit his tall child brand incredibly well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. Okay, our next story, and uh, as I alluded to earlier, this is a weird one, uh, was the story that broke uh, a few days ago. It was an article in, uh, I think, the New York Times, was it? Well, I think Time reported it first, and then it sort of um, has been circulated through various different publications since then. Okay. Yeah, so the version that I saw was the New York Times, um, uh, which was uh, what happened to Fan Bingbing, China's most famous actress, which was a story about the actress Fan Bingbing, who I think in... The West is probably best known for kind of her small roles in a handful of American movies like Iron Man 3. But in China is a huge superstar and has basically not been seen at all in public since July. Since the 1st of July. Yes, and yeah, and her social media since then has like not been updated, and this all seems to stem from an investigation into possible tax evasion that has been roiling throughout the Chinese film industry in general. You know, there's lots of these stories about how actors sign two contracts, one which say how much they earn for tax purposes, and one where they just get you know a huge amount of money that never gets seen ever again. And she seems to have been a very high-profile target of this. So she, a lot of brands that she's associated with have dropped her and they've like removed all references from her, from her website. From their website, a lot of movies she has shot already have been delayed or have been postponed indefinitely. And it's just an incredibly unsettling story of someone just seemingly disappearing from the face of the earth. And because it's often so hard to get stories out of China, particularly where it involves the government um, suppressing a person. There's just a lot of mystery about what has actually happened, where she is, what has happened to her, if she is even in China or not. You know, some people think she may have fled. Yeah, it's just it's just an absolutely crazy story. And I think it's just because we don't have, at least on the surface anyway, not to get too uh, conspiratorial about it, we don't live in anything like the environment in China. Like a, a, re- mm. a really good friend of mine has been living in Hong Kong and Shanghai for uh, the past few years. And just staying in contact with him was really hard because you would mm. need to download a Chinese social media app. Uh, we- Weibo? We- Weibo, I think. Yeah, so there's Weibo. Yeah. And then there's another one that's a little bit like WhatsApp. Mm. But we'd end up, it would just be emails and then the very occasional like, oh, I have Facebook for a bit. 
and you realize how um shut down so much of it is so my my friend matthew baron he's part of uh, cinema q which is a um shanghai based lgbtq queer film collective and they talk a lot with various activists in, in film in china and the number of people who are just being shut away uh, in social justice. Whereas with Fan Bin Bing's case, it, it does seem to be this, this crackdown on, on tax evasion. So there is this phenomenon known as the yin, yin and yang contract, where yeah. one figure of a uh, star's pay is given, the, the real figure is given to the star, and then a much lower figure is given to the authorities um mm. how they managed to get away with it for as long <laughs> maybe, maybe um is shocking to me maybe because i have an even more draconian version of china in my head i don't know um but i absolutely understand firsthand how difficult it is even just to talk so f- to just completely disappear from uh weibo is crazy there's now uh um talk of a director who has been his cameo has been cut from a film. He worked with her on a film once, um, and now he's, right. he's being cut out of things. And that's the thing that gets me, because that's interesting, because that will be someone from a Chinese authority getting in touch with a production company and saying, mm. you need to remove this person, or you know, whether it's a Chinese production company or an American production company. So it is getting weirder and weirder. Because I don't think it looks particularly good for China if their biggest star, who is who is gathering a rise and a following in America, is is left. Because because how easy would it be to just say you're under house arrest? They did that with Ai Weiwei. Mm. Although Ai Weiwei's uh, studio and warehouse ever so mysteriously burnt down a couple of months ago. Yeah. So it does seem like the Chinese authorities really are stepping up. Uh, on several fronts in terms of their cultural icons but I was trying to think of the equivalent and for me it must be something like it's almost I I can't even think of anyone UK actor wise that famous it's almost like if Emily Blunt suddenly had Mm. no social media presence completely dropped off the face of the earth and wasn't seen in in public and I can't get my head around that it's just it's just so weird yeah, and I think it also it seems to also be part of a war, uh, a wider kind of attempt by China to just, I guess, clamp down on wealth of because their whole yeah. image that they're trying to portray to their people is that everyone in China is is getting wealthier at more or less the same rate. Like their idea is that it's kind of a, a rising tide is lifting all boats thing. Yeah, and so. Apparently, they are very, very suspicious uh, of anyone who seems to attain it. So that, like, the fact that Fan Bingbing was like the the front of a diamond company, apparently, also had them on her on their radar. You know, because yes. that's it's hard not to look conspicuously wealthy when you represent a diamond company. Uh, and this is also manifested in new laws they've passed to restrict how much money actors can get for working on a movie. By example, I, th- I was looking up, it said that they couldn't make more than 70% of the total like um, 
budget assigned for all the actors so you couldn't have someone earning like 70 million and everyone else is earning 30 million or whatever you know like it mm. or something crazy like that or their budget couldn't their salary couldn't cost more than 40 percent of the total production of the movie and things like that so this does seem to be all part of some broader crackdown to at the very least promote this image that they are doing this i'm gonna go out on a limb here where even though i don't necessarily agree with how they're enforcing this that's not Mm. the worst set of guidelines is it no as we start looking at more and more stratospheric star salaries and it's like how do you address this imbalance in hollywood well maybe a little bit of economic uh jiggery pokery would <laughs> would go some way to doing it not approving of their yeah. methods but i understand the uh, motivation behind it i do mm. and, and also just it, it's very interesting that this has happened now because back when fan bingming was in can like there was a picture doing the rounds of her with jessica chastain lupita nyongo and penelope cruz and they all had announced they were going to make a movie together called 355, which yes. was going to be like an international spy espionage thriller with those as the four leads. And yeah, it just it, it's just very, very weird. Like the whole situation is incredibly strange. But the fact that she seemed to be on the point of, you know, uh, breaking through in some way, or at the very least that seemed to be what Hollywood was trying to happen. You have to wonder if that maybe also factors into it. Yeah, totally. Oh, God, I hope she's okay. Speaking of Emily Blunt, who we were just talking about, the trailer for Mary Poppins Returns debuted this week, and you and I both, I think, had a very similar response to it because I I posted on Twitter that I was furious how much the... how (laughs) well the trailer worked on me. (laughs) Because, like, I... Like, we talked about this in the preview. Like, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I have great misgivings about the fact that Rob Marshall is the director, but I love Mary Poppins so much and I love everyone involved so much. And I was just, yeah, I was really trying to tamp down my expectations because like, there's no, no way it could live up to the, you know, the, the, the brilliance of the first movie. But um, that trailer is really, is really good. May I just compliment you on such an elegant segue? I wasn't sure how you. you were going to get from <laughs> the really disturbing story of Fan Bin Bing. Um, into the delight that will be i'm pretty sure uh, it will be a delight of uh, mary poppins returns mm. but yeah emily blunt's been on my mind clearly as you can tell <laughs> i felt exactly the same i saw your reaction and i thought oh the trailer's out started watching it and then yeah re- retweeted you uh commenting <laughs> that i i think i broke down in i think i got 40 seconds in before com- like convulsing with sobs <laughs> and I think it's just that kind of film and the setup because I wasn't really that aware of the setup. I hadn't really heard much about it at all until I started watching the trailer mm. and I also really appreciate Lin-Manuel Miranda's one man it's not a remake <laughs> mission yeah. on, on Twitter because it's not a remake um it is a really it looks like I'm gonna go ahead and say it Ed it looks like a film for our time because mm. I think there's something really intriguing and crushing about returning to these characters and seeing them grow up. It reminds me of this story that was doing the rounds on Reddit a couple of years ago, um, which was a Mm. Calvin and Hobbes fan fiction reboot, which was so incredibly moving because it essentially returns to Calvin on his deathbed and he sees Hobbes. Hobbes comes to visit him again. 
and he sees his childhood friend and it's this incredibly moving piece about letting go and, and grieving your own life but in a sort of Peter Pan-like way death would be an awfully big adventure and mm. I had that same kind of feeling and response to Mary Poppins Returns because we we find that the Banks children are in depression era depression era London and you know Mary Poppins is such a a hopeful film that it ends on you know and certainly one of the first times I ever saw a suffragette particularly a happy one (laughs) and then to see Ben Whishaw who is absolutely smashing it as a sad dad uh yeah I, I as if I could love him anymore someone on Twitter did comment every time I see him now particularly in this sort of period clothes I do wonder if Jeremy Thorpe ever sent him back his national insurance card which is a wonderful <laughs> crossover with a very English scandal but every everyone in that film the acting caliber is stunning and mm. I love that kind of beautiful nod to the first film where the animation starts to come in as well um yes in, in a similar way to um another Ben Whishaw outfit Paddington how, how the Paddington franchise kind of nods kind of carries the baton from the original kind of visual style but yeah i i am ready to sing along and weep <laughs> yeah it does it, it it looks really quite uh quite sweet and, and beautiful like you say the animation stuff looks really cool and particularly i remember um i think it was uh matt patches who now is the f- culture editor for polygon i think he posted the screenshot of them like riding on the horses through the cartoon world and he said disney you have a bazillion dollars please make one more 2d animated movie because you do see that and you think oh yeah they're really good at this yeah it's kind of of a thing (laughs) yeah uh why why can't you just take a little bit of that star wars profits and you know funnel it into to making another 2d animated movie it'd be really nice but like you say the like ben wishaw does seem to be i mean he's clearly the, the he is the mr banks of this movie literally and figuratively yeah uh, and taking on the role of the the person who needs to be uh needs to be saved in the same way that mr banks needs to be saved in the first movie i think the line that got me uh going uh in the early going of the trailer is the line where mary poppins says she's here to help the banks children yeah. uh, and then like the two his two young people say us and she goes oh yes you too and it's like oh, oh god Edna. <laughs> it's gonna get uh, me again uh and it's lovely seeing uh dick van dyke back playing the son of the old bank manager that he played in the first movie i I really enjoyed the um comparison pictures that people started putting online of what he looked like in the old man makeup then and now he's aged he's aged better (laughs) than the old man he was playing in the first movie his hairline certainly seems to be uh, a little better and yeah seeing him even if very briefly seeing him dance again is like a lovely thing i couldn't agree more i the comparison was brilliant he's aged ridiculously well Mm -hmm. you know even in uh, diagnosis murder i was like what is your skincare routine dvd (laughs) (laughs) you are you are smashing it and and yeah that that very very brief glimpse we get of angela lansbury is is wonderful meryl streep as well yeah it's just got it's got everyone it's got everyone good colin firth as well which uh yeah it's just both paddingtons uh united (laughs) Uh, (laughs) the most ambitious crossover in history um (laughs) That's a very weird sliding doors 
option of like what would the Paddington movies have been like if they'd kept Colin Firth oh, instead of replacing him at the last minute. They they would have had a very different tone, I think, if if they had kept him. But then a very English scandal would have had an even weirder tone of Colin Firth had played um <laughs> it's like Bridget Bridget Jones, different kind of fight. <laughs> the trailer looks good. I'm very, very excited for it. I'm looking forward to seeing it over Christmas. I think it's going to be uh, I'm hoping it's going to be very good. Um, that Rob Marshall will finally have a good movie under his belt. Our main topic this week is indispensable performances. And uh, this was inspired uh, by a few weeks ago, I decided to rewatch the Billy Wilder movie, One, Two, Three, which I hadn't seen in many years, but I'd been discussing with uh, someone on, on Twitter. And for those who aren't familiar, because it's not one of Billy Wilder's more well-known movies, One, Two, Three is a kind of far set in... Berlin in the early 1960s and it's all about James Cagney playing this guy who's a Coca-Cola executive who over the course of a couple of days is put in charge of caring for his boss's daughter you know the idea being that if he can look after the, the kind of like the teenage daughter then that'll be his road back to corporate success having been kind of like stationed in a part of the world that no one cares about the daughter keeps going over to east berlin and ends up falling in love with the communist and he has to bring the communist back over and then like it's it's a really really funny movie and it's very it, it's a very nice distillation i think of billy wilder's light-hearted cynicism about the way the world works the sense of like he clearly has a dim view of humanity in general but also he realizes that we're quite funny <laughs> um, uh, perhaps best exemplified by a conversation a little exchange between the communist the young communist and a east german yeah an east german bureaucrat where the uh, communist says to the bureaucrat, is everyone in this world corrupt? And the bureaucrat says, well, I haven't met everyone. Um, <laughs> which is, a, is, a, is probably one of the, the most, uh, yeah, indicative Billy Wilder lines ever written. And what struck me watching it was how the movie is very funny. It's got a very funny script. But if you didn't have James Cagney in that lead role, particularly during the final third of the film where he appears to have resolved everything and then everything unravels and like within half an hour, he has to just like completely bring everything back together and try and save the day. Like unless you had someone with his unique skill sets, you know, as a as a comedian and a song and dance man, someone who's hyperverbal and able to kind of like barrel through scenes and like really has this sense that he's a force of nature but also someone who has that history playing gangsters of having a certain heft and weight to him that movie just wouldn't really work like you can't really you can't really slip any actor into that role and have it be as effective you need someone like him who has a lot of this kind of metatextual quality to him and also just who came from a very specific period in filmmaking where you had to have all of these skills and so it got me thinking about performances in movies where you really can't imagine someone else in that role or where you look at it and you think okay the architecture for the rest of this movie is so flimsy that if you took out this like performance the whole thing would collapse totally i think it's been interesting it's been interesting because i've been there's been a fair few articles recently about certain actors and mm. whether they are quote-unquote good or bad or or you know figures like Nicolas Cage and and people who seem to fluctuate between being really really great and then sometimes not so great like these really interesting unknown qualities 
but the yeah. thing for me is that it's kind of amazing when you do see a performance that seems to be for me anyway the only reason I'll watch a film or like the saving grace of a film because sometimes mm. that could be quite a selfish act because it's scene stealing isn't it you're not are you being as collaborative as you could be or mm. are you just trying to salvage what <laughs> what's around you yeah and I think, well, actually, kind of stepping back a bit, thinking about roughly a similar sort of time to your man, Billy Wilder, um, I was thinking one of the most incredible performances I've ever seen is uh, Harold Russell in The Best mm. Years of Our Lives. And he's, he's mm. one of only two non-professional actors to have won an Oscar in the Academy's yeah. history. And it's always such an amazing casting because the best years of our lives is a really beautiful film about three men coming home from war and, and returning to their lives and how their lives intermingle and how well or not at certain points they, they cope with coming back home. And this is well before anything to do with PTSD, but Harold Russell's veteran has to deal with a lot because he's, he's lost both of his hands mm. during the combat and surprise, surprise, one of the only instances of um, accurate casting in Hollywood mm. someone who actually had the disability that they were that they were performing yeah and got uh, recognition for that unfortunately after that Harold Russell didn't really work again and he ended up having to sell his Oscar which is absolutely tragic but his performance remains utterly transcendent and he completely holds his own against all of the professional actors there are real moments of catharsis and he manages to be someone who I think clearly isn't exactly himself, but mm. he has such an ease and a manner that really grounds the film completely. So that's definitely a performance that's always kind of, even though the film itself is great, has managed to elevate it as well a tiny bit. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I always think of the scene in that movie where um, he and his love interest uh, in his bedroom and he kind of talks her through what it takes for him to get dressed in the morning and he takes off his you know his the the, the harness or you know yeah. has his fake hands on his fake hands but you know his artificial hands on or his hooks really and there's such a tremendous vulnerability in that in, in you know when you see him go through the the painstaking experience of what it is to have lost both your hands and to have to adjust to an entirely new way of living and existing in the world and that is something that like an an actor who i mean obviously the technology at the time didn't exist but if you were making that film now mm. and you had an actor you know trying to do that through green screen and things like that like they could they could get some of the way there in, you know, you, you do your research, you talk to people, you kind of learn something about people's lived experiences, but there isn't really as much of a substitute for that as as you see in that movie. And, and William Wyler, who directed it, who himself had been disabled during World War II, he'd lost his hearing through riding in bomber flights, you know, like filming uh, all of these uh, documentaries that he made for the war effort. Uh, I think he really pushed for as naturalistic an approach in that movie as possible to really capture what he himself had experienced through, you know, being someone who had survived being in combat zones and also who had been left 
physically altered by it and and you really see that that's that's the one scene where that really comes through most starkly the next example i had and you know this is uh, perhaps someone a little this is a, a a kind of generally much lighter than the best years of our lives was peter falk in colombo oh. and i the part of part of the reason why is that obviously he's like so iconic at this point then part of this idea of an indispensable performance does kind of come to the fact that certain people play a role either for so long or in movies that are such cultural artifacts that it's kind of impossible to imagine that at some point someone else would have played that role but i think for him in particular what he really brought to the role is this kind of real rumpled working class charm to it and and there's something about him in opposition to all of these primarily rich people that he is investigating because uh colombo is definitely antifa oh, 100%. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm staking that now uh, he'd be in the dsa if you made it now um <laughs> like he he generally investigates a lot of kind of rich people who are fairly convinced they can just get away with crimes because they're incredibly powerful and rich and a large part of what uh, really gives that sense of contrast is he is this real working class stiff kind of guy and i think that comes through from you know just his experience being a working actor for so many years you know like being in cassavetti's movies and just kind of going from job to job and so when he landed in something like colombo which he ended up doing for 30 odd years or something um like that quality just became more pronounced over time you do really get the sense that he is this blue collar guy who's just getting by on his wits and he is so good at portraying that sense of someone who isn't necessarily you know an intellectual but is someone who is incredibly street smart and is very good at being undervalued by the people that he is pursuing like everyone underestimates him and i think that also in a weird way kind of comes through i think in peter falk's career because certainly i first knew him from colombo because i remember watching it with my my great grandmother like that was whenever we'd go and visit her like it always seemed to be on that and batman 66 but <laughs> later on in years like then you discover oh you know how he made all of these american masterpieces with uh, john cassavetes and oh you know he's in the princess bride and he's in uh, uh, uh wings of desire and things like that and you suddenly realize oh he was a actor of tremendous depth and suddenly you realize that what he was bringing to the role of colombo had a lot more layers to it working underneath the surface that you didn't really uh, understand maybe or certainly i didn't understand when i was younger i couldn't agree more i think i had a very similar um exposure to colombo it's my my mum would always watch it and it's something mm. that en- seemed to be endlessly repeated on like i think it was even itv or something and yeah. the thing about colombo is that he is so iconic like, mm. I always think of uh, Matt Groening spoke about when he was creating The Simpsons and he talked about what he called the silhouette test, where it's, yes. if you could draw a character by their silhouette and recognise them, you're onto something. And I feel you absolutely could do that with Columbo because it's not just the trench coat. It's not just that very specific, quite, uh, quite lush hairstyle mm. that he's got. It's also about like his gait and the way that he um holds himself and stands and walks and kind of how he'll tap his head like all those mannerisms just feel so distinctive and you know just one more question and he's really Mm -hmm. enjoying it 
That's the thing I like yeah. about Colombo. Like he's so different from the majority of crime procedurals because he's not we don't know anything about his home life. He's not mm. this kind of incredibly vexed and, and like darkened. He he does everything with humor and with persistence. Um there's actually a statue of him in Budapest accompanied <laughs> with a little dog uh, because Peter Falk's mother, I believe, was Romanian. Right. Uh, yeah. So they've kind of adopted him as one of their national heroes, completely understandably. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I lost my actual shit when I saw Peter Falk <laughs> in statue form in the street as Colombo because I was not <laughs> expecting it. I thought it was some kind of mirage and it had too much <laughs> of, the, of the local brandy. Uh, but no, it was real. This is a performance that's incredibly close to my heart that I'm going to talk about now. And I'm going to sound horrifically uh, hipster before it was cool. But I saw the one woman show premiere of Fleabag back in 2013 at the Edinburgh Fringe. Mm. And I remember being in one of these horrible, damp, packed uh, tunnels in the uh, the Udderbelly on the Mm. Cowgate. And I remember coming out of it not quite sure what I'd just seen but knowing that it was everything that I had been missing <laughs> up <laughs> until that point it really did feel like a total cultural touchstone and the performance live is is just totally it's it she's sitting down is uh Phoebe Waller-Bridge for the majority mm. of it so it was interesting when I heard it's being adapted for tv because obviously it's a one-woman show it actually follows like a very specific narrative And I think the adaptation is one of the best things I've ever seen in terms of carrying the spirit of the show, but then adding genuinely good scenarios and enhancing other characters, completely cutting other characters out, but not making it feel overstretched or or watered down or really quite amazing. But her performance in that is, because it really is is her performance, the, the mechanics of the show hinges on her relationship with us with the audience, Mm. with her breaking the fourth wall, with her letting us into pretty much everything that's in her head until we find out eventually the rest of what's in her head. Yeah. But she is by turns manic, funny, saucy, sexy, toothy, (laughs) hilarious. Um, And she just has this incredible physicality to her because Fleabag is a cat as a character kind of isn't self-deprecating about her body, but does sort of write it off almost as, as being quite mannish. But mm. the way that she, with her kind of like very specific bob haircut and nice lipstick and blue trench coat, the way she actually runs about various parts of London that you can actually recognize this kind of, she's not really goofy. She's not kind of throwing her arms all over the place. She's actually quite refined and and holds herself, but it's that, it's that sort of slender tall thing that she has that is not dissimilar to someone like of all people, John Cleese. Mm. It, It part, part of what makes the points where they break a little bit. So brilliant is because they're so clearly holding so much in and repressing all the time but you can see the energy within that as well. It's not yeah. like they're just fine and then and then something happens. Like you're aware of something constantly bubbling under the surface. And I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge has done incredibly well to establish her own voice kind of off the back of that because I've been watching Killing Eve. I think it's absolutely brilliant. 
And Phoebe Waller-Bridge has managed to do that amazing thing where Fleabag is so much of herself, but this, you know, very particular character. But I think a lot of people mistook that they were the same person. Mm. But now she's actually, particularly with Killing Eve, has managed to create the Waller-Bridgean heroine or anti-heroine, however you want to put it. But I think that performance is still just everything, even though every other part of that show is so well, so well done. You're just drawn to her on the screen and she's on the screen the whole time. <laughs> I don't think there's any bit that she's not in, which is quite, quite something. Yeah. And I think that in retrospect probably makes the success of the show even more amazing because it is so such a risky thing to do for a, sh- a performer who obviously had been around for uh, a while and obviously she had performed the show on stage, but to build an entire show around that with someone who is re- was at the time relatively unknown outside of, you know, kind of like comedy circles, to, to build them around them and think, okay, you not only can handle the delivery of this, but you can sell it in the performance and existing on screen and then you can handle the particular skill set of being able to break the fourth wall which is something that is very different in film and tv to how it is in theater where you know a one-woman show is very different to people are acting within the diegesis of the story and then suddenly you know they turn to camera and start talking to you it can be like incredibly awkward and off-putting yeah because with um a fourth wall in a theater it's literally behind you you can, mm. feel, you can feel the fourth wall behind you. So it doesn't, I don't feel like it's as much of a break. Whereas yeah. in film and TV, the fourth wall is as the screen in front of you, <laughs> so, which is much mm. harder to try and ignore. And she is so charismatic. And it does feel like you're the only person she's really talking to. Yeah, exactly. Even compared to the people who are actually in the story with her, who feel fundamentally less real than she is because she's the only one who's telling her all of her all of her thoughts all the time um and those thoughts are obviously like hilarious but yeah it really does it is a a really difficult thing to do and to make feel as natural and effective as she does and, and everyone on that show does and i think it really points to how talented she is as both a writer and a performer and yeah, I'm just I'm I'm so pleased at how much of a star she has become in the years since then. I mean, it's only been like what two years since Fleabag came out on the the series. Yeah, yeah. And and it really does feel as if between you know getting a part in Solo, which obviously wasn't the biggest hit in the world, but it certainly is like a, a really big thing to get to do to be in a Star Wars movie, and now the phenomenon that filling uh, filling Killing Eve has become. It really does feel as if she has ascended in a major way and it's very, very exciting to see what she's going to do in the years ahead now that she has firmly established herself as this, like you say, as someone who really does seem to have a a, a distinct and clear voice. My next one is uh, Kate Blanchett in I'm Not There. Ed, that's so funny. I've got that on my list too. Brilliant. Fantastic. And this this is mainly because like the the funny thing about I'm Not There is that you technically you can imagine another person playing that character because uh, that's what the whole movie is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's all these other character actors playing the various persona of 
Bob Dylan, and she obviously is embodying a very specific period of Bob Dylan's career, like the the years immediately leading up to his uh, motorcycle accident, and really uh, the, the the sort of stuff you see in Don't Look Back. Is that what it's called? Don't Look Back. Yes. yes. Um, I was going to say uh, there isn't an anger in there. No, that's 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 something else. But I think that she really, and this is kind of something that comes through in a lot of her roles weirdly it's it kind of reminds me of her of her in lord of the rings um like <laughs> how she is very very good at portraying an otherworldly air and in, in lord of the rings that's very important because she is literally playing someone who is who is not human and so uh is kind of like this very ethereal being to the the hobbits but that is kind of what bob dylan felt like at his height you know at, the, at his cultural and creative peak in the mid 60s he really did feel like someone who wasn't of this earth and who seemed particularly when you see him in all of his very contentious press conferences he really does feel as if he is not of this plane and that everyone around him is just getting in his way and i think that uh, kate blanchett is just so effortlessly capable of projecting that and that's that's one of the reasons why she stands out in that movie in a way that uh, a lot of the other performers don't like some of the other performances are good but like you know like christian bale and heath ledger they kind of blend together like they're not as distinctive but a lot of the other ones it's kind of hard to see that much that there's much distance between them but she really does stand out and i think she the part of that is and, and you know it's it's not for nothing that she is a woman playing a, a male role and i think ish, that that as well contributes to that sense of her being this figure that doesn't quite fit in to the movie in the way that the other characters do and therefore and therefore is perfect because she's playing this version of bob Dylan who didn't really seem to fit in the world totally like the reason that she's on my list is basically everything that you've just said i think she's just She's playing Dylan in terms of the phases that Dylan is represented in in the film. Um, she's playing, I think, the juiciest and mm. and most sort of fertile and change part of mm. of Dylan's life. Like we we see a lot of this very like agro masculine energy from the yeah. performances and i think you're right i think Heath Ledger and christian bell do entirely just kind of drift together because they're not specific enough chapters in the public figure that is bob dylan's life and i think there's so much going on in kate blanchett's segment also props to david cross as uh, alan ginsburg i think that's <laughs> inspired casting so at, at times um kate blanchett's Dylan cipher is mucking about with the, the Ginsburg cipher. There's times where she's uh, sort of longing after the incredibly whimsical and even more ethereal Edie Sedgwick cipher. Mm. She plays it loud. Uh, she introduces the electric, like casts cast the people who who loved her and adored her before, and is, is essentially or him. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna use use different pronouns. I'm gonna be I'm gonna go fluid with with this um because i think that's important i think there is this incredibly feminine energy but defiant feminine energy that mm. blanchett brings to this shade if you like to say of dylan um but then this 
she's also exposed the yes. press the press dig in deep and and find the actual names like oh your folk hero is actually a very comfortable middle class you know the whole sort of robert zimmerman um furore if you even want to call it that so there's so much going on there and i think the way that Kate Blanchett manages to physically inhabit a role. Like, yes. I mean, yeah, the hair, the hair and makeup and costume is fantastic. The cinematography is mind blowing. Like you can just picture her kind of uh, standing silently in a, in a, in an alleyway, dropping uh, signs with words on them. It, it, they, <laughs> they start to really cross over and meld into one. I think she does bring this softness and this androgyny that is so mm. striking. And I would say it's a funny film because, you know, I, don't get me wrong, I love Todd Haynes. It, it makes total sense that he made Carol with her after mm. I'm not there. But I think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an anthology of, of, I mean, I keep forgetting that Richard Gere is in that film because I have to fast mm. forward through him being yeah. in it. I can't stand it. Love Ben Whishaw again, of mm. course, but he's not in it enough. <laughs> I don't think, um, with his angry, angry Rumbo uh, poet um, interludes. But she essentially carries that film. And I think that's what I was sort of saying or alluding to earlier. But it's difficult because it's not a film that everyone made together. You're, you're mm. essentially making six or seven short films and then, and then creating it. But in a way, I would kind of love to just, just have the I'm not there with just Kate Blanchett there off the back of her performance yeah and i think another thing that she really conveys about certainly when you look at dylan during that period is there is this really interesting dichotomy between the public persona and the music he was putting out during that time because a lot of the stuff he was doing then you know that's coming around about uh, blood on the tracks era that may be a few years later but it's 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 when he's kind of really getting into a very emotionally very raw place in his life because his various relationships were falling apart and i think he was starting to look a little more inward in terms of the stuff he was writing about and at the same time outwardly he was this very defiant diffident you know antagonistic person so there's this i think she really does embody that between you know you when you see her doing kind of the requisite scenes of her kind of talking to the press and things like that you do get a sense that uh she's putting there is this sense that what she's putting forward is something of a front that she is this very emotionally intelligent person behind the, the 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 scenes and obviously that's being reflected in the art being made but for the world because dylan is so sick of being considered this prophet and everyone is hanging on every word she just starts decides to start really messing with everyone and i think she really does show the conflict in a way that feels really compelling and is is affecting because she offers as someone who is at that at that point you know is a, a tremendously famous person i think and as someone who also cares about social causes, I think she brings something of herself to that role as well, as someone who has to exist in the world, as someone who is incredibly like famous and glamorous, but also, you know, cares about the the world and where it's going and how difficult it can be to navigate between those two very different poles. 
couldn't agree more Ed I saw her once in person receiving an award and she actually emits light <laughs> so I don't I, there, there were no uh, special effects going back to Gladriel nothing that was literally just her hashtag no filter <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of other uh, women I admire and adore, uh, my next pick is Frances McDormand for Olive Kitteridge, um, which is the Lisa Chilodenko miniseries based on the book. I think it was such an incredible series because it's a mini, mini series. Like it's three episodes um, Mm. and has so many amazing people in it, including uh, Bill Murray pops up, Peter Mullen, Nathaniel Jenkins and there's something about her because I think in terms of representations of depression that that are kind of accurate and actually engender a sense of empathy or understanding for it as a disease a few and far between sort of slight slight tangent Aya Cash in the second series of You're the Worst is one of the best Mm. depictions I've ever seen of, of depression and, and the reality of it. But Frances McDormand is so interesting in this because Olive doesn't really change all that much. Like she is someone who is kind of rooted down in a really angry way to survive. She is not a particularly mm. pleasant or warm or friendly woman. She's fiercely loyal um, and does manage to realise some things about her life and how she's um, and how she's done it. She's been thwarted in terms of of a certain kind of love. She has a really difficult relationship with her son, and, and her son has a very different experience of depression, but still has it. But there's just something about her in this. She's so fierce, and I don't think that's a word you would typically use to describe depression or, mm. or, or being a depressive person. But she absolutely is, and that she brings that quality to to someone who could be sort of written off as quite curmudgeonly, you know, actually has a real axe to grind about the state of the world and really embodies the human condition. She essentially gets to be depressed in the way that a, a male would be, mm. um, and I think she embodies it and manages to maintain that absolute empathy and accessibility that I don't think many other actresses could. Yes, yeah. I think that has become something she has really leaned into in recent years. I think you can really see a lot of that in Three Billboards, which is a film I don't care for in general. (laughs) But her performance, I think she does a really good job, again, as you said about um, Olive Kitteridge, about playing a female character in the same way that a male character would be allowed to be played in that same situation were the genders reversed if a father had lost a son in a kind of a brutal way then the expectation would be that they would be allowed to kind of be very very angry and go and kind of commit acts of brutal violence (laughs) against people but you don't you know the expectation is different for for a woman and she is very very good at really making that kind of anger internal but in a way that isn't like suppressed or contained like you can tell she's very very angry all of the time but she is like 
it, that there is that general sense of like, oh, the depths of this cannot be fathomed. Like you're seeing bits of this spark through, but if all of this were to be unleashed, the world would drown <laughs> in her <laughs> anger. Uh, and I think that is a quality that she that she is very uni- very unique. She is uniquely able to to do that of of people who are currently working. Okay, I'll go ne- uh, next with um, an old favorite of ours, Carl uh, McLaughlin, and uh, in in kind of two roles which both require similar things for him from him which are Blue Velvet and uh, Twin Peaks, <laughs> which obviously we talk about a lot. But I think in in Blue Velvet particularly, something about his kind of real square-jawed Boy Scout na- naivete is so hard to, like, fake. And, like, obviously, like, this is at least partly informed by just reading interviews of Carl McLaughlin and seeing him being interviewed on television and realizing, oh, he kind of is that guy. Um, yeah. In in general. Like he he there that kind of jovial thing that that really comes across when you see him playing Agent Cooper really does kind of come through. But I think in in both stories, I think it's really important to contrast light and dark at the way that, that um Lynch does, you know, but visually as well. Obviously, like everyone thinks about the the opening scene of Blue Velvet, where it's just almost kind of like satirically bright and poppy. Uh, this depiction of suburbia, and then going down into the the ear and the the ants crawling around and everything. But uh, you need to contrast that kind of lightness uh, with darkness for both to to really have the necessary impact, uh, and so. Dennis Hopper, who obviously could also be considered someone in that movie who's giving an indispensable performance because there is so much kind of rage and darkness in him just as a person, you know, through his his actual lived experience, contrasting that against someone who feels so un, unformed, really, as a person, like someone who's so young and so seemingly unfamiliar with the way that the world works. Like, they have to really portray that sense of, like, a deer in the headlights um, uh, a feel for for the movie to really have the impact that it needs to do it it, and and in twin peaks as well you know like you need someone who conveys just this real sense of goodness at all times and this real sense of uh, this real positive uh masculinity in some ways of a guy who's there to to save the day and who doesn't really seem to exhibit a lot of the negative feelings that you really associate with lawmen and you know fbi agents just a guy who's really peppy he loves his coffee he loves his pie and he's going to do whatever he can to um to save the day and and then obviously like watching that curdle in Mm. the return is incredibly affecting as a result totally i think again there's something i think maybe i'm still sort of uh funny enough in in the gender uh what was I going to call it? The gender crate. I don't know. But I think the thing that I love so much about um, what Karl McLachlan gave to Agent Cooper is that he has got this sort of softness and almost like femininity to Mm. him that is a direct, directly opposed to the, the absolute like reams of toxic masculinity that um, flow through uh, Twin Peaks but he's also got this really, he does have this side to him. Like, 
every exchange between him and Audrey, like mm. that that was serious sexual awakening kind of time for me. <laughs> Just the way that he manages to sort of be incredibly um complimentary without being aggressive. Like Audrey, that perfume mm. smells incredible. Mm. You know, the, the the way that he pitched it where it never felt like he was taking advantage of her. And then yes. that and then that becomes like an actual point of of, of their relationship where he does sort of send her away from his bed but he's so kind of precise in an endearing way like his exercises and his uh whittling he just mm-hmm. whittles, whittles himself a flute and then you know cheers himself up walking into his hotel room by by tooting it and, and then uh, <laughs> his perfect method for self-care of treating yourself to something every day mm-hmm. yeah he's he could so easily be annoying. He's not annoying. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm sure some people do find him annoying, but he's not annoying at all. He's really endearing and quirky and, and good. And you're right. Mm. And it's exactly the word uh, is, is curdled because it's such a high and wonderful plane of, of goodness that he falls from, that he's corrupted by. Yeah, to to the extent that, like I, I I mentioned to you a few weeks ago off mic, that I'm rewatching uh, Twin Peaks: The Return now, and like multiple times while watching that show, I forget that Carl McLaughlin is playing multiple characters. Like I forget it's a different guy; it's yeah. the same guy playing yeah. Dougie and Mister C, and you know the Cooper that's trapped in the lodge because he just it's it's so almost traumatic to imagine <laughs> that he is capable of playing uh someone as as truly like awful as mr c and this in particular in terms of how the return treats like um the relationship between well not relationship but you know like the the thing that happens between mr c and audrey which is kind of like oh, like yeah. into that and and just thinking about how truly devastating that is when you consider what their relationship was in the original show and like a lot of that comes into it a lot of the power of that comes from our image of of cooper as just this this bastion of like of of goodness and like to see that same form just doing unspeakably awful things in the world is is deeply is deeply upsetting in a way that i don't think it would be if mclaughlin hadn't been so convincing at playing cooper as you know this this real boy scout figure totally so my last example here is a very recent one and one that i'm still figuring out so this is uh hugh dancy as cal in the path Mm. now i hugh dancy is a fantastic actor um i've only seen snatches of him in hannibal but he did the kind of um almost like BBC period drama featured quite a bit in, in stuff like Daniel Deronda and mm. um, has sort of steadily made his way uh, up and through. And I think he's probably generally pretty much best known for Hannibal. Mm. The Path is, is something that I found on Amazon and I wanted something that wasn't as heavy going as a drama I was really, really invested in. I was kind of looking for a soap, basically. And right. I found it in The Path. I think it's one of the most fascinating shows I have ever seen because like a soap, it does go round in circles a little bit Mm. where characters keep facing the same sort of dilemmas 
it is set in a cult, uh, which is, and it's the cultiest cult I've ever seen in that it's incredibly hippie-ish. Mm-hmm. So it's less your Scientology and more your Ragnitians, I think. But it seems to be still pretty right on and cool. And then you've got Aaron Paul and Michelle Monaghan and some really, really fantastic people because that's a big cast you have to populate. And Aaron Paul starts having doubts. But then I'm just so much more drawn to Cal, who is kind of pitted as the antagonist or at least the shadow to Aaron Paul's character. And he is very much a child of of the movement. He came into it as a child and ran away from this incredibly um, abusive situation. Kathleen Turner, the icon ah. is, plays his mother with that beautiful, beautiful voice that she has. And she's she's mm. in it for like a drop of a hat and, and steals the whole show. But Cal clearly has this incredibly dark past and he is so earnest and by the book, but he has an absolute, as soon as he gets on stage and starts preaching the sort of story of the cult, he is just completely charismatic and, and magnetic and brings everyone round and he starts to ascend. But he has this absolute shadow figure in his in, in himself. And the thing that's so interesting is that he is an incredibly sort of Machiavellian, manipulative, power-hungry character. But more in the style of like an Octavian Caesar in Shakespeare hmm. than anyone who is consciously just out to fuck everyone over. Hmm. He, con- he constantly kind of wavers through living the way of the path super hard between his alcoholism to sort of like womanizing edge he's so in love with michelle monaghan's character there is so much going on there his arc is absolutely fascinating and hugh dancy is having i mean it's it's a character with such depth in a show that on many levels is quite silly and Mm -hmm. soap like that he does stand out because he is essentially playing this character with a shakespearean reverence because there is there is so much going on and I zone out of most of the show unless he's in it, really, uh, which is a shame because it's not to say the rest of the show isn't bad. It's not the best thing you've ever seen, but it it's certainly entertaining and there's lots of thrills and, and chills and spills. But Hugh Dancy is totally magnetic and tragic and that all comes through as Cal. I just want a spin-off with Cal. I think that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I think you would really enjoy um his work in hannibal particularly as the show goes along because the whole idea is like the first season he doesn't know because none of them know that hannibal is uh is the is a serial killer and then as the show goes along they become more aware of it and i think the way in which he portrays will graham's sense of betrayal over the whole thing is really really powerful because the show uh, kind of subtextually and then just out and out textually at certain points does kind of portray him and Hannibal as 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 being in love with each other and because they both really recognise something about how they're missing something that the other have or that they really feel as if they connect on some subconscious level that they never have with another person mm. and he he is very very good at selling that sense of connection to another human being without really 
uh, without really doing all that much. He's a very he is someone who is 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 also very earnest in that that show. Like he feels like a raw nerve a lot of the time because he's someone dealing with this ability to get into the mind of killers in a way that he himself finds very very disturbing. Mm. Like his his ability to analyse other people, which has left him isolated from other people. And I think that he is someone who is, as a, as an actor, but also uh, the characters he plays, they always in, in exhibit a very palpable sense of uh, emotional intelligence that makes his work really fascinating to watch. Oh, Hugh Dancy is palpable all over, for sure. Uh, my final one is uh, going to be from a movie that came out uh, quite a few years ago now, and I think most people have more or less forgotten, which is a shame because I thought it was it was very good when it came out. And it's although the um, the people involved have gone on to to great and good things, it is Sir Sharonan in the movie Hannah, directed ah. by Joe Wright. Weirdly, considering that it's completely unlike pretty much anything else he's ever done, <laughs> um, uh, which was a, a kind of an action movie where Sir Sharonan played a kind of young girl who had been trained up to be an assassin essentially by her father who i think was played by eric banner yes in the movie and uh, is kind of like thrust out into the world and left to survive on her own and she's being pursued by her mother who i think may have been played by the aforementioned kate blanchett and i i think that was the the performance for me that made me really sit up and take notice for saoirse ronan I, i'd liked her a lot in atonement although she's not in the movie all that much so it was kind of there was there was that sense that she, oh she's very very good but also you're not really seeing very much of her whereas this was a movie where she was on screen for probably about 80 percent of it and what i think she conveys in that movie which is so difficult particularly for a younger actor is maintaining a balance between someone who is in some respects very world weary because they've been trained to kind of like survive and to kill from a very young age, but also someone who is still a child. Yes. And that really comes through in the scenes where she meets like another family who think that she's well, because she is, but they think that she's just like a homeless girl and they kind of take her in and look after her. And she kind of experiences something like a normal family life for the first time ever. And you really see a lot of warmth and humanity in those scenes which because of the kind of movie it is are pointedly not there in a lot of the rest of her scenes and that that ability to really convey both elements of that character and to keep them in such a perfect balance was for me the thing that made me think okay this this Saoirse Ronan is a really really promising young actor and I'm really excited to see what else she gets to do uh, and I find it very hard to think of any other actors who, at that age, when she probably would have been, like, 14 or so, like, fairly young, would have been able to kind of, like, do that. And, and it re there is really a sense, as you're watching the movie, that without her in that role, this would be, like, such a generic, if, you know, kind of, like, well-made, Chemical Brothers score, you know, lots of kind of good technical things going on around her. Without her in that central role, that movie fundamentally doesn't seem like it would work that's so interesting because i've still not seen hannah and you're right it really just kind of popped in and, and left out the back door seemingly without a trace mm. it is kate blanchett aforementioned as uh, she is in it you're totally correct the the saoirse ronan film film for me which really 
made me sit up and notice her uh, is a couple of years after Hannah, a film called How I Live Now, which is oh, yeah. based on the most incredible book of the same name by Meg Rossoff. I remember reading the book and hearing that it was going to be made into a film and I thought, I don't really know how you're going to do that. And it's stunning. It's an absolutely incredible film. Saoirse Ronan's American accent is perfect. Again, she mm. gets across this sense of genuine world weariness, but also still a child. But the arc that she goes through, because it's not really a spoiler that uh, things get post-apocalyptic quite quickly Mm -hmm. the journey that she goes on and and where she comes home to the fact that she manages to essentially be quite bratty at the start and then very plausibly take you through how this experience changes her forever um is amazing um so it'd be really interesting to see how you know Saoirse Ronan's pretty much one of the only child actors apart from maybe Daniel Radcliffe I can think of that is maturing and doing okay (laughs) Mm. (laughs) which I'm very pleased for them about but it's just going to be amazing to think you know we've we've basically seen Saoirse Ronan grow up on screen and it's going to be really interesting to see what she does going forward with her adult roles obviously um on Chesil Beach is coming out very soon um Mm. the Ian McEwan adaptation so um but yeah I think I'm sure she's got so much more and, you know, she's done so many more amazing performances since then, but I think How I Live Now will always be the one that uh, sticks with me, with Ms. Ronan. And we end this week's episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, cheeky as ever, Ed, but I am I am, use, I am using the two-week-away sort of as, as, my, uh, as my excuse here. Um, mm. <laughs> I'll allow it. Thanks, pal. You're, you're very, you're very accommodating. I do appreciate it. Um, I woke up to the news this morning that Dennis Norden had passed away um, mm. at the fantastic age of ninety-six. For a lot of our American um, audience or anyone sort of outside the UK that might not know him, he was a uh, comedy writer, but he sort of became best known as a presenter, particularly of a sort of pre-YouTube clip show it would probably be called something horrific like epic fail compilation (laughs) 62 now but it was this beautiful show called it'll be all right on the night and he had Mm. this lovely steady warm way of speaking and he just really drew you in and uh, managed to enjoy all of the um mainly you know don't work with children and animals but all sorts of uh clips of things not going how they should be on uh, bbc and tv in general so he passed away but BBC News actually has the most incredible obituary of him, which um, reads more like a feature uh, because it begins with him um, in the army, along with Mm. Eric Sykes, one of his uh, comedy uh, colleagues going forward. Um, But they stumble into uh, the recently liberated camp of Bergen-Belsen. And the article just really beautifully uses that as a starting point to understand him as a person and what he'd been through and puts him in the wider sense of social and historical context and of the humor and the comedy that came forward after that in this in this post-war attempt to try and fix the world and make everyone laugh again so that's number one number two is uh, the second series of slow burn Ooh, my God. right so the first series i really couldn't get on with slow burn is a podcast from slate Mm. and uh, the first series covered Watergate 
and uh, and Nixon and everyone sort of um, the efforts around that Woodward et al. Um, and I I just couldn't find a way in. I was like, this is normally the stuff that I absolutely love, and and I really struggled. I think because it felt really far away when it really wasn't all that far away. But the second series is all about Clinton and mm. uh, the process of his impeachment and focusing in particular on the um, incredibly inappropriate relationship with Monica Lewinsky. The level of detail and personal um, story in this mm. is absolutely heartbreaking. And I think it wouldn't have been able to have been made or understood or, or a lot of the reporters and, and journalists who were looking back on how they treated Lewinsky and really regretting it. I don't think that could really have come without me too. And Monica Lewinsky has been more vocal and more present within within the sort of Me Too culture because obviously she was she was twenty four, I think, at the time, um, mm. which is insane. That <laughs> everything she had to go to, go through um, that early on, so completely in the global public eye, and for her to come back round as I've dealt with shame, I can have a life now. But she's so powerful. She says, you know, I only really understood until a few years ago what a gross abuse of power that was for Clinton to do that to me some of the details are like I've been listening to it on a train and, and I've, I've said oh good god out loud to myself several times and it is just the way it's structured is incredible the fact that they get access with uh, interviews with people like Linda Tripp who was so mm. um, pivotal to events oh it's called slow burn, but I'm absolutely burning through it like no, like nobody's business. So that is my recommendation number two. Yeah, I'll second that. I was listening to that on my flight yesterday, the the second season, and yeah, it's just it's it's so compulsively uh, listenable. And you're right, it does really feel, and you get that a lot with some of the interviews. I can't remember who it is they're talking to, but at one point they're talking about the 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 entire kind of like issue of like sexual harassment and things like that and one of the interviewees like says uh she kind of like laughs a little bit but then she's like i don't know why we're laughing this isn't this isn't funny these days anymore and like they really are kind of like reckoning with the changes in the culture really over, over the last 20 years but particularly like the last two years or so and um it really that really does add an extra level to what is already kind of like a a very fascinating chapter in american history completely and it makes it feel so contemporary that we're only just getting the tools now to be able to properly uh look back at what happened then and the thing that i'm starting to understand listening to it is how clinton was still given an incredibly squeaky clean image over here um mm. kind of the oxford the oxford alumni the boy done look from uh, arkansas done good but the way that he treated in in office, at least privately, really not mm. that different to a certain orange-haired fascist. Um, mm. uh, sorry, orange orange-skinned and white-haired fascist. <laughs> Although they're starting to get to a point where it totally blends. But there's this incredible mm. quote from I believe it's Linda Tripp, who talks about you know the fact that he he essentially made uh, Monica Lewinsky give him uh, give him oral in the private office and she just is trying to explain why she's sort of bringing everything down and she said well the way that he was treating that office an office that reagan wouldn't go into if he wasn't wearing a jacket 
and that you just realize like oh my god yeah he totally run roughshod over it where he could mm-hmm. my recommendation is also going to be a podcast it is a podcast called the good place the podcast <laughs> which is um not something i had been interested in purely because it is like an officially sanctioned podcast produced by nbc to kind of promote the good place and i'm always a little leery of that sort of cross promotion Mm. but uh, i I, a lot of people had said oh this is like a really delightful and insightful example of this so i I started listening to it and it is really really great there is lots of because it's it's hosted by mark evan jackson who plays sean on the show and has a tremendous voice uh one of the one of the great voices of our era and so it's, it's lovely hearing him talk but he is obviously because he's worked on the show he's very knowledgeable about what goes into making episodes and he gets because it's being made by the company that makes the show you know all of the principal characters come in for conversations so he's spoken to mike mike sure has a he has a very long conversation with mike sure in the first episode about the origins of the show and the experience of writing it and you get a real insight into what a thoughtful writer Mike Shaw is in terms of like how he came to come up with the idea of the good place and the kind of rules he established for himself and and things like that. Uh, It's great hearing him talk to the actors, but also people like, and this obviously ties into what we talked about today, people like the casting directors, Alison Jones, most notably, who casts every funny thing, basically, uh, where, you know, they talk about the process of how, they found the various cast members and how uh, uh, the requirements for Tahani were literally an immensely tall British woman of Pakistani or Indian origin and how they were amazed that they found someone who fit exactly those criteria. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and how just like, or like for the character of Janet, like it literally was anyone who's funny. We don't have any idea what this character is going to be. <laughs> so they... In- so they interviewed hundreds of people of every age, race, or sex you could possibly <laughs> uh, ask for before they uh, they got Darcy Carden. Uh, and it is, I think, a, probably about as good an example as you're going to find of something like this, where it's kind of produced by the people who the show is about, where everyone involved is very funny and charming, but also very very again that word very thoughtful people who are very considerate about the work they do and who are able to articulate why what they do is so good and different in a way that makes it kind of really fun to listen to. And and also Mark Evan Jackson is because he works on the show, but isn't like a regular cast member, you know, he comes in whenever they need him. I think he has just enough of a remove that he does. He is able to ask interesting questions. So uh, yeah, so it's very good. Definitely worth checking out. Talking shirt balls, Ed, that sounds great. (laughs) If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on Stitcher, Player FM, iTunes, all the usual places, and leave us a review and, and recommend us to your friends. It's the, the the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye! <laughs>